I'm Kyle McNulty, and you're listening to Secure Ventures, the show that follows cutting-edge founders in the cybersecurity space to understand their plights, glories, and revolutionary products. With me in this episode is Melissa Widner, CEO of Lighter Capital. Melissa has a background of incredible experiences across both operating and investing roles. She was the CEO of Seven Software, which was eventually acquired by Concur before beginning a run as a partner at Seapoint Ventures for 17 years. Now she is tackling the natural hybrid, operating an investment firm as a CEO of a revenue-based financing company. In the episode, we talk about the model of revenue-based financing compared to traditional venture and how it fits into current economic conditions. With all the attention on the state of the economy, I hope this conversation proves valuable for many of you who are weighing your options to support your companies. Melissa, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Yeah, of course. So you have quite the track record as a longtime investor across a whole host of different industries here. I mean, again, with such a kind of storied background, I'll say, what brought you to Lighter Capital and what was that like making the transition to Lighter as CEO a few years back? Yeah, well, um, I feel like Lighter is a great mix of everything I've done in the past. So I was an entrepreneur and then a venture capitalist. I, I successfully, as CEO, exited two companies and then became a venture capitalist and an angel investor. Um, became really active in um, the Seattle Angel scene in the late 90s and 2000s, and also was at a venture capital firm in Seattle, and then moved to Australia in 2009 and got involved in what was a very nascent ecosystem at the time that has grown quite a bit in Australia. Um, It's now thriving, um, the whole startup and venture ecosystem. Um, And most recently, I was the managing partner at National Australia Bank, NAB's Venture Fund. And in 2018, NAB, along with Silicon Valley Bank, invested into Lighter Capital. And Mm -hmm. I went on their board, um, got to know the company. Um, When COVID hit, got to know the company even better. And when it was time to bring in a new CEO in 2020, um, I jumped from the venture capital role at NAB into the CEO position at Lighter. So I've been there about two years as CEO. Awesome. And so the so back on the operating side, which is, which is much harder than the <laughs> investment side. And I've always said that because I started out on the operating side and um, you know, there's really just no comparison. Sure. And so uh, was there anything in particular that like made you want to, to take that jump back into the operating side, right? You mentioned, Hey, you had this experience as an operator, as a successful founder You had this long track record of investing afterwards. And then you said, hey, well, I'm still going to work in investing to some capacity, but I'm going to be on the operating side of it. What was that decision like for you? Well, it was lighter itself and sort of being in the Hmm. right place at the right time and really seeing a need and having a vision where this company, which is a great company, could go. Um, But on the operating side, this is really the best of both worlds in a lot of ways because the best part of being a venture capitalist is you get to work with the most amazing people on the planet, <laughs> startup founders, and you get to talk to startup founders all day and help them. And, and that really is the best part of that job. But um, one of the worst parts of the job is that you are saying, no, 
99 times for every one time you say, I heard somebody phrase it that way. And it's true. Um, I remember pitching to venture capitalists in Silicon Valley and you spend so much time preparing for your pitch and, you know, they're maybe hearing four or five plus pitches a day. And um, it's, it, 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 it's just such an, such an imbalance really. Um, but at lighter, we, we are, it, it's pretty straightforward. It's based on the numbers. Um, there's no nothing subjective that goes into our decision making when we're deciding whether to fund or not. We're looking at the numbers, seeing if it fits our model. Um, then we provide capital to the um, founders, and we don't take any equity. We don't take any control. So we're basically providing the money and helping them. So it's all the good parts about being a venture capitalist in terms of being able to work with entrepreneurs, meet lots of entrepreneurs and really help entrepreneurs and, you know, help them realize their dreams and without some of the, you know, the bad parts of the job as a VC. Yeah. So let's talk through that a little bit more, right? Because I think this model is probably new for a lot of founders. This is something that's obviously getting a lot of traction in revenue-based financing, but most founders still think of the kind of go-to investment route as giving up equity in traditional VCs. So what is the, what are the core challenges you think of the traditional VC model that cause founders to look for revenue-based financing instead? Well, the main one is that VCs just fund a very small percentage of companies. You know, they fund, so not every company is going to fit the VC model. Um, not every founder is going to fit um, who VCs typically fund. Um, and one of the, you know, one of the issues might be um, TAM. That's a big one. There's a lot of sure. big companies that aren't TAM total addressable market. There's a lot of big companies that aren't going to become unicorns, but they're still really good companies and they need growth capital. So, you know, what, what options did people have before uh, revenue-based financing? You know, there was VC and most companies don't don't fit into the VC mold or they might fit into the VC mold later, but, but don't maybe early on in their lives. Um, and then banks aren't going to lend to companies that don't have assets or, or you know, where the founders um, not providing a personal guarantee and the company's not profitable. So the option historically has really been to bootstrap um, and, you know, growth is typically slower if you're bootstrapping than if you have some capital injection. Right. And so uh, from the way you just put that, it kind of sounds like lighter is a backup approach if you aren't able to get VC funding. But at the same time, I have to imagine there's plenty of founders that find it appealing otherwise, just because, hey, I don't have to give up any equity and I can still maybe get that injection of capital that I need to take the business to the next stage. So besides those scenarios where, hey, maybe it's not a fit with traditional VC because of the TAM or not the, the business model or specific market focus or any of that, what is the kind of core reason you see founders coming to you, even if they are maybe applicable for the traditional VC model? Yeah. And, and there is, you know, we've done, it's going on a thousand rounds of financing now because we started in 2010 to wow. about 500 companies. Most companies take more than one round of financing from us. Hmm. So there's every flavor, but in terms of, you know, why people come to us, but, um, you know, one, you know, that we just talked about before, it might not be um, your typical BC backable company at the time we fund them, it might become later. But then there are sure. a lot of companies that are BC backable, but right. the founder 
chooses not to give up that control and take that dilution. And sure. when you think about selling, you know, 20 or 30% of your company, especially at the early stage where you're selling it for not very much money, <laughs> um, that's when it's the most expensive time to sell your company. Then it really, if you don't have to do that, um, the outcome for the founder at exit is a lot better because they own a lot more of their company. And, and that's, you know, unless you're getting something beyond capital, which a lot of VCs are bringing something beyond capital in terms of, you know, great strategic advice and connections that, um, you know, will make the company worth a lot more money at exit um, where it's worth giving up that equity, then, um, you know, it really doesn't make sense to do that unless, you know, unless you don't have alternatives. Um, another reason that, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll back up a little bit. I would, I say to founders, if you're looking at, you need a million dollars to take your company to the next stage and you can get that million in either debt or equity, you should always go for debt other than two scenarios. And the first scenario is if that equity is going to bring a lot more value than, you know, bring more value than you're giving up of your company in terms of, you know, you're getting on board somebody, you know, a venture capitalist or an angel investor that's really going to help propel the company, then that would make sense to give it up. Or if the debt is going to become onerous to service, could become onerous to service and put the company at risk. So the nice thing about revenue-based financing is that the um, lender, so our interests are so aligned with our customers because the amount they pay us on a monthly basis is based on their cash collected revenue. So if they're seasonal or if their revenues declined dramatically, like some of our companies did during COVID, we had companies whose revenues went down 90% during COVID, but the amount they paid us went down 90% as well. So they weren't stuck with this, you know, this crushing debt burden. Right. Okay. So let's definitely dive into that a little bit more as well, right? Because we've talked now about some of the challenges with traditional VC backed, again, maybe you're not a fit or maybe you don't want to give up equity. Uh, you've started talking about the revenue-based financing model, how you adjust the down or interest payments that are required based on their own revenue. But tell me a little bit more, just what does that lighter model really look like? Yeah. So it's, it's pretty simple. So let's say we give a company a dollar, put a dollar into their, uh, funding, we'll say, depending on the risk profile, there's a fixed amount they're going to pay us back over three years. And right. on average, that's call it $1.30 or $1.35 over three years. Sure. So we would give a company a dollar and we'd say, okay, you're going to pay us back $1.35 over three years. And you'll pay us back a percentage of your revenue until that $1.35 is paid back. So where we do really well is if the company grows a lot faster than projected, they don't pay more than $1.35, but they pay us back faster. So that's great. That's more, right. that's actually, um, we end up, uh, it's, it's more profitable for us. So, or if the company gets acquired before the three years is up, you know, that's great for us. And from a company standpoint, you know, they're not paying more, they're, they, they're paying a fixed amount. Right. And if they're paying it back faster, it's just because they've grown faster. So it right. really aligns our interest with theirs. We have every incentive to help them grow as quickly as possible. Yep. Yep. And to your point, right, as an investor, it's great to be in a position where 
you win when the company wins. So like you said, faster growth yeah, for them absolutely. means you get paid back faster, which is really a win for, for all parties involved. It means that that capital injection did its job. So uh, let's talk a little bit about cybersecurity then, right? I mean, we've talked a little bit about the, the model, uh, the financing structure. Cybersecurity is obviously one of the areas that Lighter invests in, but you have a very numerical-based model. So what's the criteria for determining whether or not a company is qualified for a lighter investment? And how does that maybe differ for cybersecurity, if at all? Yeah, it doesn't differ at all. Okay. Um, We have companies that we have funded in the space. We funded BlackBag that went on to be acquired. We funded uh, ZX, which went on to be acquired. Um, The... We we look at revenue, we look at runway, we look at gross margins, we look at churn. So it's the same for a cybersecurity company as sure. it would be for you know another B2B SaaS company. Um, I would say one thing that's a little different. I've I actually as a venture capitalist, I had invested in a couple of security companies. And um, one thing that can be different with security companies, not all of them, is that oftentimes they can't. Um, celebrate their customers as much as as um, you know other companies can because the customers right. don't necessarily want to advertise what security solutions they're using. So that's that that's probably the only difference I would say, which is which doesn't make a difference for us. Although you know we probably can't share as much information as we might have on some of our companies. Yeah, that's a conversation I've had with several security yeah. founders recently, especially around like real time ransomware detection and prevention where they say, oh yeah, we're helping companies. (laughs) Like if they're actually exploited by ransomware, the ransomware is not going to be effective because they have our platform in place, which is going to detect it and block it again in real time. However, it's pretty tough for them to then get customer case studies and scenarios of actually blocking ransomware because none of these customers want to admit that they were hit by ransomware in the first place. So it, to your point, creates this kind of interesting dynamic uh, for these these security companies, but one thing I want to want to go back to there, right? Is you mentioned some of these key metrics like gross revenue and and churn. Do you have like core guiding metrics within that? Uh, like for example, a specific churn threshold or like a gross revenue multiple over time. Like any just kind of key benchmarks that you look for for some of the founders who might be thinking, oh, this is interesting. Maybe this is applicable for me. Yeah. So, um, and and this is another reason that um, revenue-based financing might not work compared to venture when when um, when founders have a choice. So we are limited to a multiple of their MRR, um, mm-hmm. their monthly recurring revenue. And for smaller companies, it's four times their MRR, and for larger companies, it's six times their MRR. So think of a company that has a hundred thousand in revenue. We could provide up to four hundred thousand in um, funding, and then as they grow, we could provide more, and that's what happens with a lot of our companies. They grow and then Got they it. take more. Um, but imagine you're a company with there's a lot of them out there, a hundred thousand in monthly revenue, and you need ten million dollars to execute on your, you know, execute on your right. vision. And you're not going to get that from revenue-based financing. You know, we can't. We can't provide because you just wouldn't be able to service the debt on that. 
um, it'd be more than 100% of your revenues to service the debt on that. So <laughs> if you need something that's much more than a, say, a 4X or a 6X multiple on your monthly revenue, then um, this type of financing, it could supplement um, dilutive financing, but it's not going to be the, the sole solution. Sure. And again, part of what's really interesting right now is the current market conditions that we're going into and all of these investor letters that have been sent out. Yeah. We were just talking before we started recording about Y Combinator's letter, uh, Sequoia's letter. So a lot of investors are, are taking note of these market conditions and, and trying to warn founders that, hey, make sure that you're getting into this default alive mode where uh, you can continue operating even if your numbers don't go quite up to the projections that you were expecting or if raising capital isn't quite as easy as this maybe been for you over the last couple of years. Yeah. So with everything you just described, right, I'm sure a lot of the founders listening said immediately, okay, well, our multiple is nowhere near that for the money that we're looking for, because a lot of these security companies are very high growth tech companies operate at a loss for a significant period of time. So how do you see revenue-based financing and, and the lighter model fitting in with what we're facing here with potential economic uh, repercussions coming forward? Well, I think it's a it's a great time for our our model right now for our type of financing, and um, and it's a great time on several fronts. But as VCs pull back and become more conservative, right. you know, people look to other options. I mean, look, if you can raise three million dollars on a hundred million dollar pre with an idea, which is you know some of the things that was <laughs> that was actually happening in our recent market then you should go get equity and you can raise it from nice people. You should go get equity financing. Right. Right. Um, Cause it's not very dilutive. And, um, but you know, those days are probably over <laughs> at least for now. Um, so when, what, when you think of what's going on just in terms of valuations, so especially on the B2B SaaS side. So valuations, if you look at the 10 year average, this is for public companies of um, B2B SaaS, B2B SaaS companies. It's the 10-year ARR um, multiple is the average is about 5.8. And recently, it's actually gone to below the average at 5.4. But if you look at the Hmm. past few years, it was over 10. So it's (laughs) come down quite a bit. And what's interesting, and and this was Sequoia put out um, some research around this, it's just interesting that for the first time in a long time, it's actually trading at below the 10-year average. So, so let's say you're a company and you raised and, and private companies usually get higher on average, will get higher multiples than public companies, but let's say you raised at a 20 X a year ago. So your revenues were, I don't know, $5 million and you were able to raise at a hundred million dollar valuation because you had you know, great growth and a good story. Sure. And let's say you just killed it. So you doubled your revenue. So now you're at 10 million in revenue and ready to do your next financing round. You're probably heading into a down round just because of what's going on with the market, right? So it's going to be harder to get a 10X today than it was to get a 20X a year ago. So, you know, that seems um, really counterintuitive, right? Doing really well, exceeded your projections and going into a down round. So this is actually a great time for revenue-based financing. When you think about using capital to, you know, get to that next stage, because 
we're not pricing around. Um, we're looking purely at the numbers. If it's 10 million in revenue, well, we, we have a cap of 4 million that we can go up to, but a company could get 4 million in funding from us if they meet our other criteria. So, you know, it takes a few few weeks to funding. The application takes under 10 minutes. It's a very fast, very painless process um, compared to going out and doing an equity raise. So it's, it's, it's actually, I think this market will be a great time for our product. Interesting. And one of the things that just kind of came to my mind as we're talking about this, right, is I'm sure there have to be some exceptions that exist as far as burn rates, right? Because there's some companies that are maybe making a decent amount of revenue, but if their burn is, let's say, five or six X that, and your model is based on that that incoming revenue and, and revenue potentially downturns just based on, again, market downturn, then obviously gives extra risk to lighter. So how does burn factor in from a, a ratio standpoint? You mentioned 4X and 6X based on company size. Uh, how does, again, burn factor in? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I would say that most of the companies that we um, end up not being able to fund, it has to do with runway. So um, if we, you know, if a company is coming to us and they have like a few weeks of cash or a month of cash, which happens pretty <laughs> often, actually, and we're looking at, okay, look, the, the money that they have today combined with our funding is not going to be enough to, you know, get them to that next milestone, then that's where we probably can't, can't help out. So the best time to come for this kind of funding or really any kind of funding. I mean, I remember as a VC, if companies are coming to me and they have a couple months, you're just thinking people aren't really good at managing cash. That's kind of, uh, you know, the basic, basic, um, skill set you have to have in running a company. Right. So, um, so that runway is one of the things that is that we look at really closely. Yeah, totally makes sense. And, again, and, and I think we try is- not, and especially in this market, we we try not to count on an equity round being around the corner in sure. order to make sure the company will continue to survive. So we're looking for companies that can continue to survive even you know when the equity markets contract as they probably are doing right now. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about that, right? Because we've kind of alluded to this market conditions piece. Like you mentioned, VCs are largely pulling back. Multiples are going down so far this year. Um, and that's creating a lot of a lot of turmoil for the markets. But you mentioned, hey, this is a very numerical based model. Like we have these specific metrics that we're looking at, whether it's runway or whether it's your, your multiple in terms of um, revenue. So how does the like how has the market activity actually influenced some of those numbers? Like, is this something where your team is looking at it and saying, previously we were willing to give 5x, but now that the market's changing, we're giving 4x? How has yeah. your model changed in, in any of these different ways? We it hasn't, it hasn't changed. Okay. So, and we've been doing this for you know over a decade now. So we have not, we're not pulling back in terms of the multiple. Got it. Well, so based off of that, then what is maybe some of the like advice that you would give to, to founders based on, on what you're seeing here uh, from a, a market standpoint, and maybe what are you seeing from a market standpoint uh, beyond what we've already talked about here? Well, I think that, I mean, look, this has been talked about so often in the last <laughs> yeah. month. It's, you know, the focus was growth, growth, growth. 
um, and now the focus is focus is runway. So, um, and I, I just, you know, I went through. I started my venture capital career in 2000 when it was, you know, it's kind of the height of the dot com era, and then you had the dot com crash. It, it was a, a, a long drought, and right. you had to be alive. And there's a lot of companies that, I and mean, this might not be as long. We don't know, but there are a lot of um, companies that ended up becoming really successful in in the teens. I mean, it took them a long time, but they survived that era. They were able to, you know, do whatever it took to survive that time. I mean, what I saw a lot during that time is you're really relying on your current in their current investors for future rounds of financing. So there wasn't a lot of financing and it might not be the same this time because there's a lot more money out there now, a lot more funds out there now, but you had to rely on your current investors for subsequent rounds versus being able to go to new investors. Because investors right. were, you know, trying to keep their portfolio companies alive. Yeah. Yeah. Totally makes sense. And um, again, I think most of the people who are following along have probably heard these narratives so far, and this probably isn't coming as a complete shock, but I think it's always good to just hear that from other people who are really living this day to day. So again, appreciate the perspective. And I think like we've talked about, right, the the idea is not, hey, revenue-based financing is like the perfect solution. And all of a sudden, all of your cash management problems are solved. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you're a, a startup or even mid-stage, late stage, and you're looking for some just additional cash to help weather the storm uh, that, again, a lot of people see as, as potentially around the corner here, uh, then this is a good way to just kind of bolster that, that arsenal and, and make sure you have the resources needed to, to survive through to the other side. So Yeah, yep. absolutely. And without taking, you know, what we could go into looking in after previous crashes, the terms were very onerous. Right. And we saw things like, I mean, multiple, you know, multiple liquidation preferences. Um, I've saw, I've seen three X, five X, and that's just what it took to get around done. So, you know, a company needed money and there wasn't a lot out there. And, and so the terms were, were, um, you know, much different than what we've seen over the last decade. We've been in a bull market for a very long time. Um, so, um, Revenue-based financing, you know, we don't. Our terms are are pretty straightforward in terms right. of you know we're not taking equity or control. So, so it it should be a good a good solution for companies that are already venture backed and you know don't want to go out and, and do a fundraising in in a market like this. <laughs> right. So one of the other things that I wanted to to touch on before we wrap up here is you're the chairman and co-founder of Heads Over Heels, which is essentially helping women leaders uh, kind of achieve that that dream of theirs, helping connect them with network, uh, just a, a broader network and some resources from a leadership and a strategic standpoint. Can you tell just a little bit more about what Heads Over Heels really is aiming to do? And maybe for some of the interested female founders who are listening right now, how they can potentially get involved? Yeah, yeah. Heads Over Heels is a not-for-profit that um, we started in 2010 out of Australia with um, a couple other women, Janet Menzies and Alex Burrell and Sarah Lucas. And um, it was specifically to help women running companies with high growth potential 
um, fast track the connections they needed to mm. grow their business or would help them grow their business. And it came from, um, you know, sort of all of our experience, but I, I started a company in Palo Alto and 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 joined a group called Forum for Women Entrepreneurs, and it was a group that um, they did a lot of educational, you know, pitch sessions and and that kind of thing that was really helpful for entrepreneurs. But what I got out of it the most was just the connections, connections to sure. funders, to partners, to um, other team members we brought on. It was for me, it was just a great source of um, connections to help build my business. And so when I when we thought about, you know, what do, what do people really need? And women are actually quite entrepreneurial. They start as many or more companies than men. They just don't grow them. And, you know, mm. one of the reasons they don't grow them as quickly in general as men do is um, there's a couple of reasons. But one of the reasons is they're not as well connected. Mm. Um, they don't have the this as well connected as their male counterparts. Um, and that's a generalization. There's, of course, exceptions to the rule. So what Heads Over Heels does is we have a group of connectors. We call them our connectors. These are senior business leaders, men and women, who are interested in seeing, you know, seeing the numbers change in terms of women running um, high growth companies. And they're willing to open their networks up to these these um female CEOs. So it's actually quite a selective process to become a heads over heels um, portfolio company. And then once a, um, once a, a CEO becomes a heads over heels portfolio company, they're able to present to our network of connectors and they basically say, here's what I do and here's what I'm looking for. We actually just had an event last night and we had three companies present and you know, one of them is looking for connections to schools. They have a great, they have a great product that helps train teachers and keep teachers engaged and have lots of schools as customers already, but you know, they're looking for those connections to schools. So they came away from last night's event with 50, uh, 50, I think 50 plus offers of warm introductions to schools. Wow. And you know, all of those aren't going to turn into sales, but one or two might. And as you know, if you have a warm introduction, if it's, you know, these are a lot of times from board level and C-suite people saying, look, I'll introduce you to the, you know, the head of this school, you're at least going to get a meeting. And that meeting could otherwise take you years to get. Yeah. And it might be with the wrong person. So it, it's really about fast tracking those connections. And after doing this for more than a decade, there's just so many great success stories. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a, a no-brainer, even just from that quick description, right? Like, 50 warm connections. Most people, even if you've worked in like education, for example, it could be hard to come up with 50 people who are actually in the position of buyer for whatever it is that, that you're selling. And so having access to that broader network of people who are really dedicated to helping you, again, seems like an absolute no-brainer. Okay. So you just mentioned, again, kind of the, the no-brainer around companies trying to follow or, or founders rather trying to follow this path and, and get involved with heads over heels. What's maybe one of those specific examples of how a founder has benefited from this? Yeah, there's so many, but I'll, there's there's <laughs> um, one example I love to tell, um, and that's Sharon, um, new from Expense Manager. Um, she has a it's a B two B SaaS company. They sell to mid market companies. They sell a platform to help them manage their um, payments and expenses, hmm. and. When she first presented to Heads Over Heels, this was probably five or six years ago, she had been trying to get a partnership with Myab. Myab is probably the largest 
um, mid-market accounting platform in Australia. And she had just been, she wasn't finding the right person. She couldn't get a meeting. So when she presented at Heads Over Heels, she said, you know, here's some of the asks I have. One of the things that I'm looking for an introduction to my app. Well, one of our Heads Over Heels connectors, Naomi Simpson, she um, knows the CEO of MyOb. She just sent an email and said, hey, you should look at this company. The CEO responded right away. She got a meeting. They did a partnership. And her sales went up tenfold um, <laughs> in the next, I don't know, year, year and a half as a result of that partnership. And the thing wow. is, it was really good for MyOb, too. MyOb really wanted, you know, this was a very mutually beneficial partnership. But Sharon just didn't have, you know, the warm intro or the warm connection there. So, you know, we've got that story over and over again. And that was really yeah. a catalyst for um, for Sharon's, you know, Sharon's company. Perfect. Well, I'll go ahead and include the information as far as actually applying to Heads Over Heels in the episode description. So for the folks listening, again, if this is something that sounds interesting to you, uh, go ahead and apply. No harm can be done from, from going through the application process. Uh, you can even add a little note that uh, that you heard about it on Secure Ventures and uh, maybe improve your chances there a little bit worth a shot. Um, but uh, again, Melissa, thank you so much for, for sharing your time here. I think this is just valuable and, and very timely advice and information for a lot of founders that are mulling over their options given the, the current market conditions. So can't thank you enough. Yeah, thank you, Kyle. I enjoyed chatting with you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you can write to me at kyle at secureventures.io. I'm Kyle McNulty and you've been listening to Secure Ventures.